Let's pray. Lord, we are your church, we are your people, and we love to meet together. Uh, young and old, rich and poor, uh, regardless of ethnicity or background or culture, we belong to you, and you are building your church, and not even death can keep you from accomplishing that mission. And so we praise you, Lord, and we ask you, would you send your spirit to speak to our hearts this morning and change us? Would you remind us of who we are and whose we are? Would you fill us with a holy passion, fanned the, fan the small flicker of holy ambition to be faithful with the gospel? Fill us with a sense of gospel urgency. Lord, we know that it's wonderful to meet together and it's wonderful to sing the songs and to fellowship and to pray together, but there is a world outside these doors who is lost and needs to hear the truth that we've heard. So embolden us, Father, we pray. Protect us from error now and fill us with your truth. And we praise you ahead of time for what you'll do in my heart and in the hearts of your people here and listening online today. Oh, Father, I pray for those who are down the hall or listening online that they might not feel like they're spectators. But I pray that just as I trust is true of those in this room, that they too would plead with you to speak to them and have an ear that is turned toward your word and be docile to your spirit this morning. May that be true of all of us, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, if, uh, if the Lord allows, we will finish this chapter today. And if not, we can come back next week. And let's stand together and read the text. We're going to just pick up with verse 21 and read to the end of this chapter. I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 2, that Christological passage that says so much about our Redeemer. But we have a great text today as well. Here we are, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul's in the middle of um, a monologue, as it were, this letter, this part of the letter to the Philippians, and he says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We talked about that last time. And then he continues, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake 
engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. As I read the letter of Paul to the Philippians and his other letters, I come away with a distinct impression that he was somewhat of an armchair athlete. And by that I mean that while his life calling was to be a missionary of Jesus Christ with the gospel to the Gentiles, nevertheless, he sincerely loved sports. Of course, he never earned a basketball scholarship to the University of Jerusalem. He never played American football. He never competed in the Olympics. He was obviously well acquainted with the Isthmian Games in Corinth, however. And while he may have never practiced athletics, he, he certainly had the heart of a serious athlete. He could have transitioned out of ministry into sports and become a star. He possessed the kind of personal discipline and diehard spirit of determination that every athlete has to possess in order for them to win. Paul seemed to live by such athletic slogans as, no pain, no gain, or go big, or go home. I mean, it especially reminds me in Romans where he says, uh, I've, I've planted churches in Asia. There is no more room for me in Asia. I go to Spain. Really? That's big. That's big. And we see this not only in, in the way Paul lived, but even in his vocabulary as he wrote, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he exhorts believers as if in a halftime locker room pep talk, he says, do you not know, gentlemen, that those who compete in the game all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. There's going to be that kind of conversation next week after Sunday service during the Super Bowl in halftime. And here was Paul doing the same thing with us. Same thing with us. In 2 Timothy 2.5, he says, if you're going to be an athlete, you will not win the prize unless you compete according to the rules. Again, in Philippians 3.14, regarding his determination to win, he says, I do not regard myself as already having laid hold of it, namely the prize, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, for the ring, for the medal, or whatever it is. And even when he got to the end of his life, you remember how he concluded things? I have fought the good fight, boxing. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. And we come to our passage this morning, I can't help but notice, at least in the original language, the same mindset of a champion athlete. And again, we get a hint of it here in Paul's word choice. Look at verse 27, and we'll kind of jump ahead, and then we'll start over again. Uh, verse 27, the phrase, striving side by side. Striving side by side. That's kind of like four words, or depending on whether they're hyphenated in your book or not. In Greek, it's actually one. And the root of that one word is athleo, from which we get the word athlete. And if you have eyes to see it in this passage, the athletic motif is clearly discernible through, throughout. 
and I believe that's by design. And, and Paul used other phrases. He, he spoke of wrestling, if you paid attention to the Ephesians 6 passage. You know, spiritual warfare is like a wrestling match. He was familiar with that sport, right? And some of you guys, uh, there are at least two among us who are uh, champion wrestlers in this church. And, uh, and Paul loved that. Paul loved that spirit of determination and that willing to fight for what he believed in. You see, Paul is talking about his own sense of gospel urgency. And the best vocabulary for that is the vocabulary of sport. He's more determined to advance the gospel in the world than the Philadelphia Eagles are determined to advance the football toward the Patriots' end zone in the Super Bowl next Sunday. And if my dad were here, he'd say, you bet they are, and they better win. You see, Paul sees himself in the contest for the gospel. And if you're taking notes, this is point one. The contest for the gospel. Paul's constantly laboring, striving, suffering, pressing on to advance the gospel. In fact, in his letter to the Philippians, he speaks as if he's the team coach and the members of the church of Philippi are his players. And that's how we should view ourselves in this text. Jesus is the owner of the team. Paul, at least in this passage, is the coach and we are the players in this contest for the gospel. This is who we are. And this is how we should see Paul. There's no doubt that the gospel is the epicenter of Paul's life. And again, we get that from this text. St turn back to the beginning of Philippians. We see in verse 4, Paul refers to the Philippians as partners with him for the gospel. In other words, they're on the same team. You are partnering with me. And everybody understood he was in charge. Everybody understood that he was the coach. You are partnering with me for the gospel. And for that reason, he wrote this letter. They were re he was rejoicing in their partnership. He was so glad to have them on his team. In verse 7, Paul says, he has suffered imprisonment for his defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's, he's playing for keeps. He's leaving it all on the field. He'll leave his life on the field if necessary. He's laying down his life to win this contest. Verse 12, he indicates that being thrown into jail didn't hinder his game plan. To the contrary, it just changed the venue. Prison life was actually helping him advance the gospel. And we talked about how do you interpret your own suffering? Remember that? Because most of the time we misinterpret our suffering. We think, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. Every time Paul suffered, they said, this is good. This gives me another opportunity. This puts me in another place. This gives me opportunity to minister to you in, in various ways. Gives you opportunity to, ministry to minister to me. And then in verse 13, Paul explicitly says that he was put in jail for the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so you see, Paul viewed his whole life as a contest for the gospel. He was advancing the gospel. We've said many times around here, we're not looking for church growth. The goal here is not to make a big church. The goal here is gospel growth. We want it to go deep, and we want it to go broad as far as God will allow it in terms of evangelism. But we're not feckless and, and indolent. We shouldn't be with the gospel. We should be like Paul. That's the whole point of having a conference in, in four weeks, three weeks, on gospel urgency. We need Paul's gospel urgency. 
And we'll be talking about that more as we go. By the grace of God, Paul was determined to, to defeat the power of sin and death that plunges men into eternal judgment. And the only way to do that is with the power of the gospel. It's not just by being nice to people. Loving people is the beginning, yes. But listen, it is news. The gospel is news. Someone has attributed to Francis of Assisi, and, and I don't think this is right. I think there's, there's no evidence that it really was him who said this. But it's attributed to him, and so if you want to look it up, you can find it under his name. But uh, it is said that he said, um, preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. Oh, well, that sounds really good. Except, the problem is, the gospel is news. Imagine turning on the evening news and seeing the guy standing there looking at you in a loving, nice, happy, encouraging manner. You're not going to get the fact that Trump tweeted something today and what that was. Listen, this is news. It must be spoken. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What you hear is the word of Christ. It must be spoken sooner or later. You can't just love people into the kingdom. You love them and then you speak to them. You love them and then you speak to them. And this is what Paul did and this is what he wanted the church of Philippi to do, and apparently they were already doing, as persecuted churches are in the habit of doing. And so coaching his team in this contest was a really big deal to the Apostle Paul. He didn't take the responsibility lightly. And now that he was in jail and facing and um, who knows what, either life or death, he found himself in the throes of a dilemma. And... Um, and it brings to light his commitment to the team. And so beginning with verse 21, here's what we see. Paul's commitment as the coach. And so this is point number two, right? The commitment of the coach. Now watch this, verses 21 through 24. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, of course, we understand that Paul doesn't really get to choose whether he's going to live or die. Nobody gets to choose when you're born. Nobody gets to choose when you die. But he does frame this part of his uh, his teaching to the church of Philippi and to us in terms of a choice. And I think he's doing it that way for effect. He wants us to feel um, what he feels, as if this were making the biggest choice of his life. He wants us to understand how sold out he is in his final decision. And so he frames it as a choice. This is willful. It's almost as if he was saying, uh, I know I don't have a choice, but if I had a choice, whether to go to heaven right now or to stay with you, this is my decision. On the one hand, he's convinced that dying will be gain. In heaven, the contest will be won. It'll be over for him. The victory will be won. He will receive his reward. He will hear from God the Son, well done, good and faithful servant. There will be no more sin. 
There'll be no more dying, no more tears, no more funerals, no more pain, no more cancer. There will just be joy unspeakable and full of glory forever and forever in the presence of Jesus. Nevertheless, Paul understood the value of living in the world. To continue on earth would mean more time in the game, more, more play time, not not play time like full and round time, but on the field time, in the game. More opportunity to score for God. And that's what he means when he says in verse 22, if I live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. There is still significant work to be done in training the Philippians to advance the gospel on their own. And they would have to do that when he's gone. And I think in his mind, they weren't quite ready. I think if, if this were the letter to Calvary Bible Church from the Apostle Paul, he'd be saying the same kind of things. You guys aren't quite ready. I'm not going anywhere because you need me. You need more training. You still need somebody to kick you in the pants and get you out on the field and say, don't, doesn't matter how bad it hurts. You are going to get knocked down. You are gonna, I mean, we're, this is, we're playing for keeps. And so don't think it's, it's like sipping tea and writing letters. It's, it's not. This is a serious thing we're doing here. It's a serious game. It is the contest for the gospel. And so Paul understood that significant fruitful labor for him was a worthy reason to stay if he had the choice. And so if Paul were given the choice, it would be a tough call. This is what he's saying. It's going to be hard. This is a hard decision. It's a difficult dilemma. Do I finish well and start enjoying the fruits of my retirement? Do I keep coaching? Um, in verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's not as though one is pulling him this way and the other is pulling that way. It's like, you know, at, at Mineral Well State Park, there's, a, there's an area where uh, we like to go rock climbing. We haven't done that in a while, but they have a, a cave. And you're out there and you're walking between these gigantic boulders at Penitentiary um, Canyon or whatever it's called down there. And these walls are out here. And then when you go into this tunnel, it suddenly, you know, they come pressing in on you. And you can kind of touch them like this. And it's dark and it's, it's a little bit scary. And Paul is saying, this is what it's like. It's not that I'm being pulled in two, two directions. It's two good things that are pressing on me. Go home to be with Jesus? That's pressing hard. I want to do that. Stay here with you and continue in fruitful labor? Ah, I really want to do that too. What shall I do? That's his dilemma. And so in verse 23, he says, he explains it. My desire is to be with Christ. Now, this is interesting. The word for desire here is epithumia. And those of you who counsel know what this word means. It simply means strong desire. And the reason our counselors know this word is because it is used in James chapter 4, and it's translated lust. Why do you fight? Why do you fight? Is it not your desires? You lust and do not have. It's the same word, epithumia, and Paul is using it about himself in the context of advancing the gospel or going home to be with Jesus. And in this case, 
I want to be with Christ. I want, I want, I really want to be with Christ. It's epithumia. It's a strong desire. It's what you think about when your mind goes into neutral this afternoon when you go home if you have opportunity to take a nap and as you're not under the pressure, you'll be thinking about something. Where does your mind go? Where does your mind go? For Paul, he was like, every time I close my eyes, I picture myself standing in front of Jesus. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I want to be there. It's what you dream about when the going gets tough. And for Paul, he dreamed about being ushered into the presence of Christ. He wanted to be with Christ, which is, he says, far better. Better than what? Better than staying here. It's far better. And actually, the phrase in the Greek, far better, is actually not two words. It's three words. And so you might translate this, it is far, far better, or the NAS says, it is very much better, and I actually like that translation best. It is very much better than staying here. Not just better, not just much better, but very much better. This is Paul using superlative language, which he often did. Paul really wanted to be with Christ. That's the point. He never talks about going to heaven to see the pearly gates. He never, he never says anything about the golden streets. That's not Paul, that's John. And he was told to talk about that. That's not why he wanted to go to heaven. He didn't want to go, he didn't want to, go to heaven to see his mom or his grandma. He never said that. Every time Paul talks about his desire to go to heaven, he wants to see Jesus. And you know what? That's the only reason. I mean, if when you dream about heaven, you naturally go toward thinking about pearly gates or golden streets or, or your mom or your grandma. Listen, the thing that should excite us about heaven is Jesus. We will get to see our Lord. We'll get to talk with him. It won't feel like a one-way conversation all the time. And so Paul wanted to, Paul wanted to go. It's where he wanted to be. On the other hand, however, verse 24, to remain in the game is more necessary on your account. And so his dilemma is between that which is very much better and that which is more necessary on your account. If, if we're simply talking about personal benefit, Paul's dominating desire to be with Christ. I mean, if you're going to let me be selfish, I'm out of here. I'm going to Jesus. But given the choice, he was willing to put his deepest desire on hold in order to further benefit his team and advance the gospel. And so this is the difficult dilemma. This is the difficult dilemma. And by the way, what a picture this is of love. Because we've said many times around here, right? What's the definition of love? It's so important that you understand this or you're not going to do marriage very well. To love is not to feel. Feelings come with love sometimes. Sometimes love has, has feelings that you would call bad feelings. And sometimes they're really, really good feelings. But to love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to regardless of how I feel. 
You can love someone regardless of how you feel. Even if you're angry, you can love. To love is to give. God so loved the world that he gave. What? He gave what we need. What did we need? His son to die for us. And he did it. And here's Paul saying, listen, if it's just about my personal benefit and my comfort, I'm out of here. I'm going to heaven. But that's not what this is about. If I had to make a choice, I wouldn't leave yet. I love you. He, he said that in the beginning of chapter 1. I love you. And here's the demonstration of love. Here is the manifestation of true love. Given the choice, as much as I want to go to heaven, and though I want to be there more than I want to be here, I love you too much to leave you. There's still work to be done. And so forget about retirement. I'm not retiring yet. I'm going to stay. And so here's the difficult determination gets resolved in a, dis, a difficult dilemma gets resolved in his decisive determination. And we see that in 25 and 26. He says, convinced of this, I know, by the way, convinced of this, God didn't tell him. We don't have any indication that the Holy Spirit whispered in his ear or that Jesus told him what to do. He didn't get an impression. He didn't get a word from the Lord. He didn't twist a scripture somewhere. He's doing the math. He's taking what he knows about the truth of God's word, and he's applying it to his situation. And he says, listen, I know this is the best thing. If, if given the choice, this is the best choice. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue. And, and, I, and by the way, know here, I know is um, oida. It means I I see with the eyes of perception, not revelation, but I perceive, I perceive that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul saying, again, if it were my decision, I would decide to stay a little longer. Why? For your benefit, for your benefit, for the fruit that could be born in your lives by my staying. In verse 25, he, he says, it's for your progress and joy. Progress in the Christian life is what? It's spiritual growth. It's growing in Christ-likeness. It's progressive sanctification. It's helping us to become more and more like Jesus. It means becoming more like our Savior and better equipped to proclaim and to defend the gospel of Christ as Paul did. And where there's that kind of spiritual growth going on, it is accompanied by spiritual joy. When there is growth, there's indication that's the, tr that's the, the, the evidence that there's life. Life produces fruit. Fruit produces joy. And um, this is important for us. John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? Full. In Romans 14, 7, Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. This is, this is not where your ultimate satisfaction is going to come from. It doesn't come from eating and drinking. It comes from Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where there's spiritual joy, where there's spiritual growth, there is rich spiritual 
joy. And listen, one of the tests of the quality of your relationship with the Lord right now, and I'm not necessarily saying your salvation, but the quality of your relationship right now. Think about your relationship right now. Is it full of joy? When you think of spending time with Jesus in his word, is that full of joy? When you think about getting some spare time and, and reading the word or reading a good book that points you to the word, points you to Christ, to give you joy, do you come away from that filled with joy? Do you go to it with joy? And we're not talking about happiness here. You say, well, that's the di what's the difference? Well, that's a good question. Uh, happiness is different than joy. Happiness comes from the Latin word hap, which has to do with chance. And we see that in certain vocabulary words in English, like happenstance or haphazard. To be happy means that you were positively moved because of the circumstances that you currently are experiencing. Joy, however, comes from the rock-solid, eternal relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. His promises, his work on your behalf, your fellowship with him. He is life in you. That's where real joy comes from. And um, that kind of joy is something that you can have no matter what your circumstances. Whether you're sick, whether you're in prison, as Paul was, or whether you're sitting in church. And I think too many believers can sit in church, even in church, and not have joy. Listen, if you can't have joy here, I don't know where you're going to have joy. If you can't have joy under the ministry of the Word, under the teaching of the Word, under singing these songs, I think there are Christians who can come and sing the songs and not have joy. Listen, that's not really singing, just as it might not be praying, that kind of praying where you're not really engaged with God, you're just reading off your list. I've got to be careful. I'm wandering from my notes right now, but I think this is important for us. Galatians 5.22, Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. Joy. It's something the Spirit produces in you. If you are his child, if you're on his team. And so Paul re resolves the difficult dilemma with a decisive determination to remain on as coach of his spiritual team. And that brings us to the second main theme of this passage. First, we saw the contest for the gospel. Actually, this is the third. And then the commitment of the coach. And then number three, the contract of the team. As with every sport, the privilege of getting to wear the jer jersey comes with the responsibility to live a certain kind of way. There are obligations, there are duties that you fulfill, not only on the field, but on the sidelines and in, the, in your home and on your calendar and what you will eat and what you won't. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. A good athlete, he's, he might like ice cream, but he's not going to eat it um, like everybody else because he's in the game. He's a member of the team. In order to run... As if to win, you've got to say no to some things that other people are, are fine with saying yes to and are lawful things. The privilege of getting to wear the jersey comes with the responsibility to live a certain way. If you become an NFL player, you basically turn over your life to the team. 
I mean, everything else you do is filtered through the grid of whether or not it will help or hinder the team's ability to advance toward winning the contest. And so it is with Paul. Paul says, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in the spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There is a kind of life that appropriately adorns the gospel. And of course, the New Testament says much about this. And Paul's not saying much about it. He's saying a little bit about it here. But elsewhere, he says things, and the other authors do. For example, we're to be joyful and content with what we have. Paul will say that later in this letter. And we're to be humble and forgiving. We're to be generous and full of good works. Uh, all of this is adorning the gospel well, living in a manner that adorns the gospel. We are to be diligent and honest in our labor for our employers. And we are to long for the word of God and we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are to strive to be holy even as he is holy. This is what it means to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in this context, Paul, our coach, calls us to be unified. His concern here is unity. You can't really see it in the English, but in the Greek, the word manner of life can be translated citizenship, which infers that it's not just one. I'm not a citizen. I'm not like the president and the vice president and the citizenry of my own world. Although some of us live like that. Um, we are joined with others. This is a citizenship. Or the other analogy that Paul uses in his writings is, it's a family. It's an oikos. It's a household. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. Let your family life experience be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And this, by the way, is further evidenced by the fact that the pronoun here is you, and it's plural. It's all. Okay, so the way we say it in Texas is all y'all. Right? I'm speaking to all y'all. He's not speaking to you as an individual. But all of us, is, we're, we're members of a team. This is a team now. That is to say, the way we relate to one another and serve with one another is what Paul's concern is here. And by the way, we have worked through 26 verses in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and are only now coming to his first command. And that's significant. I mean, that should, I mean, that should be blinking red for us. All of this time he's been talking. I mean, this is, this is what, my fourth or fifth message in, in Philippians. And we're just now getting to his first imperative. This is what I want you to do now. I love you. You love me. Thanks for the money. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sending Epaphroditus. He was sick. I'm sending him back well. Yada, yada, yada. Now, let's get to the exhortation. Your responsibility as a member of my team, you're going to live a certain way. You're not going to live like the world. You're not going to live as if you were not a part of Christ's team. 
There's going to be changes. And, and that's what happens when you come to Christ, right? Things change. You become a new creature. Old things start passing away. New things come. There's change. It's the way I like to see it. When the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, enters a sinful human, who changes? I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And one of those changes is now, I view the church differently than I did before. They were just a bunch of weirdos before. <laughs> um, and, and maybe dangerous. Not anymore. These are my brothers and sisters. These are the people I love. These are the people I serve. These are the people who serve me when I'm down. I mean, these are, these are the people who, if there's a funeral or a birth or a wedding, good night. You can't keep this, this team down. There's work to be done, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it together. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We serve with those who serve. We comfort those in need. This is instructive. Notice that the focus is still on the gospel. Paul is still pressing for what we've been calling gospel urgency, but he is showing us the necessity of pursuing gospel urgency in the context of community. This is not just about you and your, and, and, and your Bible and Jesus. He's not calling you to do this alone. I mean, if it's a football team, there's 11 guys out there. If the coach says, you know, Kirk, get out there on the field, and nobody else is out there, no, I just mean you. Defeat the other team. I'm in serious trouble. I mean, even if I'm one of the 11, I'm in serious trouble in the shape I'm in. <laughs> And we're not called to do it alone. We're called to do it as a team. And let me just kind of put shoe leather on that. I was reading a book last night called uh, The Brokenhearted Evangelist, which we're going to highlight this coming week, and you'll have opportunity to purchase it next week. Um, and he was, he was talking, obviously, about evangelism, and, and he was uh, reminding me that uh, not, everybody, not everybody is called to do evangelism like I do. And like some of the men in the church have the opportunity to do. So many of you women, some of you are, are in business and, and there's, there's more continuity there between the way our, our men in business share the gospel and the way you share the gospel. But there are a lot of women who are just home with the kids. One of the ladies said, you know, I don't, think I've, I don't even think I've been in my car since, you know, four days ago. You know, I'm home. I'm home with the children. Listen, that's your, that's your mission field. That's your place. That's your place to be ministering the gospel. And if you're at work, you minister the gospel there. And if you're, you're at a restaurant, um, so I'll tell you this, uh, I was uh, gone a, a week or so without sharing the gospel with someone. I keep praying, Lord, give me an opportunity. And then I thought, I'm just going to have to make an opportunity. And uh, I got thinking about a conversation Brent and I had uh, three years ago. And he came home from studying at a coffee shop and he said, you know what, I found, I can go to this coffee shop, and all I have to do is take my biggest Bible and open it up, just flop it on the table, and then take out a, a notepad or something, alone, to sit there alone, and there I am studying, got my Bible in plain sight, people come up, and they want to talk, so that's what I did this week. I went down to Yogi's, and I thought, just me, lunch, my Bible, and if nobody comes, um, I'm going to work on my prayer journal and, and other things, study this text a little bit. 
And sure enough, didn't take long before somebody came by and said, is that a Bible? And I said, yes. And he said, I love the Bible. I love the Bible. And I said, well, great. Tell me about it. And I started asking him questions. He didn't know hardly anything about the Bible. He had a favorable impression. And when I pressed him on the gospel, no idea of the gospel. And when I explained the righteousness of Christ to him, he, he just lit up. I've never heard this before. Where's your church? Can I come to your church? Oh, never mind. I work on Sundays. I said, that's okay. I'm in the office throughout the week. Come and visit me. We can talk some more. Go to an, empty, go to an open uh, a venue where there's lots of people and you're by yourself. Flop the Bible open. See, I mean, it's like fishing. You just drop the bait in the water. <laughs> You're just waiting for a nibble. All I need is a nibble, right? And we're in. Really, I mean, I'm thinking, it's one thing to go downtown and, you, and you're, you're identifying people and you're going to go after someone and say, hey, can I talk with you? That's scary. I mean, but our guys do it. They go downtown every other week. We alternate with Living Hope, so we're not crowding the street corners down there. And, uh, but there's another way to do it. It's an easier way. Just go to in a, in, a, in a populated public place, drop your Bible open, and wait for a nibble. And if you know the gospel, if you don't know the gospel, get to know the gospel. We can help you with that. Okay, I have no idea where I am in my notes right now. But, <laughs> but here's the point. I know what the point was. Um, Paul is calling us to understand that we are a team. Listen, I wouldn't have known to do that if I hadn't said, hey, Brent, <laughs> tell me, remind me what you said three years ago. And he, he remembered exactly what he said to me. And you know what? When I come to the office here and the other two guys that I work with say, hey, you know what? I had an opportunity to share the gospel today or this week. And I'm like, how'd it go? What'd you do? Where'd you go? You know, good fishing place? I, I, I'm going to go there. Um, tell me. And we pray together. We think about this. We pray for the lost. There are lost people that my, uh, uh, one in particular that my wife and I are praying for. And we're doing it together. It may be husband and wife doing it together. It may not be going downtown. It may not be going to a restaurant. Just in your sphere, as you have opportunity, you're in the game. You're in the game. Listen, when God rescued you from the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, he drafted you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You changed teams. He drafted you into his, the kingdom of his beloved son. And on Jesus' team, we are no longer random individuals doing our own thing, living for our own lust, our deceitful desires. We now belong to the community of Christ, and we have a mission. Now we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, Ephesians 2.19 says. Now we have become part of God's dream team. Jesus is our owner. Paul is our coach. What a wonderful, undeserved privilege it is to be on his team. But we are under contract. Or to say it more biblically, we are under covenant with Jesus. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. And we've got to get busy. We've got to get busy advancing the gospel. But again, the privilege of Wearing the uniform comes with these obligations, these duties. Verse 27 again, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you 
or I'm absent, that means if I get out of jail or not get out of jail, I'll still hear, I'll still hear of you, and I will hear that you are firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so, what does it look like? What does it look like to be under covenant, under contract with the owner, Jesus Christ, our coach, the Apostle Paul? What does it mean? What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, first of all, a worthy manner means we have a common life. <coughs> common life. Paul says, we have one spirit. Uh, here he's not, not referring to the Holy Spirit. This means that out of our common life in Jesus should come a deep sense of camaraderie in our fellowship with, with the Lord and with our mutual labor in the Lord. We should be encouraging one another, exhorting one another, all the more as we see the day drawing near. Jesus, Jesus should come, um, with knowing Jesus should come a, a deep sense of camaraderie because we belong to one another. And so as teammates drafted by Christ and empowered by God, we stand firm in one spirit. We engage in the contest together for the gospel. Second, a worthy manner means we share a common goal. Verse 27 again. We are to have one mind. In other words, there should be no confusion about what the goal is. Namely, to effectively deliver the gospel to all the nations in order to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. I mean, next week, when the Super Bowl hits, no ambiguity about what the goal is. And so, if you come into church and you think the mission of the church, the goal of the church is to end poverty, then we don't have one mind. If you think the mission is to be accepted by the world, then we will not be of one mind. If you think that the mission is to make America great again, we will not be of one mind. That's not the mission of the church. Our mission is to reconcile sinners to God, to plead with them, be reconciled to God in Christ by the power of the gospel. And the wonderful news is that we are not called to do this alone. That's the whole point, I think, of this passage. We fulfill this mission together we do it, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And this is where we find that atheleo, the word from which we get athlete in the English. We do this side by side. As fellow Christians, we're teammates working together to score big for the glory of God and looking for opportunity to make a, a significant play every day, every day. Of course, we never know how significant it's going to be. By the way, this is why in chapter 4, verse 2, just flip the page over um, one time to the right. In verse 1, Paul says, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche. <laughs> Nobody really knows how to pronounce their names. <laughs> now watch, watch the exhortation. I entreat you, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, watch the words, side by side with me for the gospel. No doubt they're on the team. No doubt they're on the team. 
but they need to be reminded what the goal is. And you know what? You get, you get, you get two moms who are crossways with each other. won't be long before their two dads crossways with each other. You've got two couples who are crossways with each other. You're going to find two families that are, that are headed toward division, and it'll just grow. You form a team. You invite people to join your team, and the church fractures. And Paul says, you guys need to talk to Yodia and Sintichi. And they're, they're members of the team, and they're in danger of harming the unity of this church. We need to be careful about this. We need to be careful about unity. And so living in a worthy manner means that we have a common life and a common goal. Thirdly, a worthy manner means that we have a common opponent. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, and not frightened in anything by your opponent, your opponents. And this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of salvation for you and that from God. When a team of athletes presents themselves on the field, it's completely unified and intent on one goal, having no division among them. A team with unified teaching, unified thinking, unified relationships, unified purpose, it's a sign to the opponent that they are in serious trouble. And it's a sign that the Spirit of God is alive and at work in this team, in this church. How else can one account for the fact that people of such diverse backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures can live in peace and joy with one another? And not only that, but to labor with one mind and one spirit for one faith, the faith of the gospel, the faith of the gospel. The faith refers, perhaps in, 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 well, in most contexts, to the doctrine of the gospel. But it's not just the doctrine. We're laboring so that people will believe that doctrine. You see, beloved, gospel urgency is encouraged by the reality that we have no reason to fear the opponent. 1 John 4, 4. John encourages us with the reminder that greater is he who is in you, greater is he who is in you than he who is what? In the world. Your opponent. The one who is in you is greater than your opponent. And the weapons of our warfare are divinely spiritual, Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 10. They're divinely spiritual for the destruction of fortresses in every lofty thing that's raised up against the power of God. And so we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. People throw objections, we have answers. And so, as a team, we have a common life, a common goal, a common opponent. And then fourthly, a worthy life means we recognize the fact that we have a common privilege. But this common privilege isn't the privilege of being on the team. This is a different privilege, verse 29. Okay, put your seatbelt on and your crash helmet, here it comes. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, allusion to advancing the cause of Christ, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, faith is a gift, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's true that not everyone will love you for sharing Jesus with them or exhorting them to trust in him as the only way to God. And some will take offense 
And Paul is saying, just as your believing in Jesus was a gift from God, so your suffering in him is a gift. It's a privilege. And we recall, do we not, from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 41, after the apostles were arrested in the temple for preaching the gospel, they were put in jail. That night, an angel came along and let them out of jail and sent them back and said, go back to the temple and preach again. We're going to get arrested again. That's okay. Go, go preach again. Sure enough, they go preach again. They get arrested again. They get put back in jail. And the authorities have this meeting, and Gamaliel says, be careful. Hear what you do with these guys. You might, may find yourself being the opponent of God. And if not, then this thing's just going to die away. Don't make too big a deal out of this. And the Sanhedrin took the advice. And so they went to the apostles and they warned them never to speak of Christ again. And then they beat them with rods and sent them back to their friends. And Luke tells us, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted, what? Worthy to suffer shame for his name. Notice the phrase, considered worthy. That's what Paul's talking about. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And worthy of the gospel is just another way of saying worthy of Christ because Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. It's not the words that you say that save people. It's Jesus that saves people. And throughout the church history, it has always been the privilege of the church to suffer shame for his name. And it occurred to me this morning that other New Testament authors speak about this. And certainly... That's true of Peter who said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is common. Not everyone is going to love you for this. But you are a member of this team, right? And I'm your coach. And Jesus owns you. And it is a great privilege to wear the jersey and to fulfill your duty in proclaiming Christ. As we remember this, Paul was not merely pontificating about these things from a comfortable office somewhere. He was actually living out the very things he was exhorting them for. In verse 30, this is how he closes. Engaged, that is, they are to be engaged for Christ's sake in gospel urgency that from time to time leads to suffering. And he says, engaged in the same conflict that you once saw in that I had, and now hear that I still have. I am writing this not from my comfortable home, but from jail. And I'm telling you, it's okay. The water's fine. Jump in. We got a medal to win, we got a game to play. We got an opponent to conquer. We got lost souls that need to be saved. There's joy that you're missing out on. There's fellowship that you do not experience unless you're ministering together for the gospel. And that's my hope for our church. I hope that we will glean from this passage this morning the encouragement that you were never meant to fulfill the Great Commission alone. 
gospel urgency finds its strength in gospel community. We have a wonderful gospel community here. A lot of things are going right here. We're really good at sanctification and discipleship here. We need to be better in getting in the game for the advancement of the gospel. We need to be better evangelists wherever we are, wherever we are, and all of it to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for, from time to time, pushing us out on the playing field, calling us to do as a good coach. Um, The Apostle Paul is making us do things we may not want to do so that we can become the people that we want to be. So, Lord, I pray that you would have your way with us. Help us not to be passive about that, but to be active and strategic as we see the day drawing near. And, Father, we praise you and we give you thanks for all of this. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen.